You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. I'm Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library in Barrington, Rhode Island. Today, we have a special interview with this year's 2020 Reading Across Rhode Island author, Elizabeth Rush of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Elizabeth was kind enough to accept our pivot from an in-person event back in March to what you will hear in the minutes that follow. As a stand-in for what would have been a live audience question and answer session, I received emails and voice memos from members of the Barrington community, and we are excited to share this along with the interview. And that is not all. We also have released two bonus episodes, which you will find in your podcast feed. The first is a reading by Elizabeth of the opening chapter of Rising, titled The Password, and is set along the East Bay bike path at Jacobs Point in Rhode Island. The second bonus episode was recorded by Cranston Public Library and Living Literature, a Rhode Island-based collective of artists and educators performing Rising in the form of Reader's Theater. So grab your knitting, go for a walk, drive home from work, start making dinner, whatever it is you like to do when you settle in to listen to a podcast. Then later, check out our show notes for Elizabeth's reading recommendations, ways to get involved with climate change activism, and information about all of our amazing community partners who worked on the original in-person event we had to cancel due to the pandemic. This includes the Friends of Barrington Public Library, Barrington Land Conservation Trust, Inkfish Books in Warren, Change for the Better Community Action Group, and Rhode Island Center for the Book. And now to our interview. Elizabeth Rush is the author of Rising and Still Lives from a Vanishing City. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, National Geographic, the Atlantic, and more. She is a recipient of numerous fellowships and grants, including, in 2019, she was the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artist and Writer. She received her BA in English from Reed College and her MFA in Nonfiction from Southern New Hampshire University. Today, she teaches creative nonfiction courses at Brown University that carry the environmental sciences and digital technologies into the humanities classroom. Welcome, Elizabeth, to Rhodey Radio. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me. We first met in June of 2018 at Riff Raff Books in Providence, where you were promoting the recent publication of your book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. In Barrington, just a couple of months earlier, the library and the Barrington Land Conservation Trust had hosted a talk titled Climate Change and Rising Water, How Barrington Will Be Affected. It was our first event on the topic and over 75 people turned up to hear from our speakers at Save the Bay and the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council. It was a sobering presentation as CRMC showed us their storm tools maps to illustrate how coastal storms with or without sea level rise will impact communities like Barrington and the East Bay. 
In your book, you document nearby Jacob's Point and the effects of saltwater inundation on the Tupelo trees. Can you share a bit about the significance of this for Barrington, the East Bay, and Rhode Islanders? Yes, yeah, so I think for me, one of the most important first steps in terms of waking up to climate change and its impact on us is learning to see it. So, you know, we often hear about one degree of warming, 1.5 degrees of warming, two degrees of warming. And those are all markers that I think are a little bit hard to keep track of or feel or sense in our bodies. Like what's the difference between 78 degrees and 79 degrees? It's, that's a very, very fine line for most human beings. And they have a hard time mapping and tracking those kinds of changes. So for me, one of the things that caught my attention as I worked on rising here in Rhode Island, but also around the country is that every community that I went to um, had dead hardwood trees in it alongside it. Um, and those dead hardwoods are dying because of saline inundation. They're dying because of um, rising sea levels. And you can see them everywhere you go around the country in low-lying areas. And to me, they're a marker, they're a clarion call. They help me remember that all of the vulnerable species living in our borderlands, they don't have the ability to move are often dying in place. And so, you know, this opening chapter of the book opens with an image of the Tupelo trees at Jacob's Point that have died of saline inundation. And I mean them to be a key that helps me, but also readers learn how to see and recognize sea level rises, early impact on our coastal communities. So, you know, if you're taking a train between here and New York City, you fly alongside these wetlands that line the East Coast and they are lined in dead trees and that's because of sea level rise. So I'm trying to help readers learn to see and identify the ongoing early impacts of climate change. And do you want to mention a little bit about the photos in your book? I, I'm imagining you took all of them while you were out in the field. Yeah, so each chapter opens with a picture of a tree that has died due to saline inundation in that community. And I did take all of the pictures. Um, and to me, you know, I didn't want to take pictures of the people in those communities that maybe felt a bit exploitative. And instead, I wanted to um, create a kind of series of images that are haunting and poetic at the same time, kind of lyrical that mimic the prose that's in this book um, and that teach us to also see and engage with the more than human world. This is not just a human problem, human vulnerable communities problem. This is all about all of the different species that are wetlands dependent. And if we don't help them move, um, they will also perish in place. And that will be, you know, contribute significantly to the ongoing extinction um, that's playing out all around us. So they're also a, a call to remind us that it's not just vulnerable human communities that live in these spaces. It's vulnerable animals, plants, um, more than human communities that occupy them too. Coronavirus and living through a pandemic is new for almost all of us, and we've had to make significant changes to our daily lives. 
but we've been living with the effects of climate change for years. Your book shows proof of this slow-moving environmental pandemic, if we can call it that, and yet we don't respond with any sense of urgency. In both situations, it's communities of color that are the most vulnerable to the effects of COVID-19 and rising sea levels. What connections are you drawing from our current state of the pandemic in America and our collective sense of environmental justice? As COVID-19 started to unfold um, in the, during the past spring and we started to read the reports, or I started to read the reports, that you were, were seeing you know, significantly higher percentages of cases in black and brown communities with higher death rates. Um, I was unfortunately not surprised by that. And I think that, that when we see the ways in which climate change impacts frontline communities first, and the way that those communities are often black and brown communities, um, and that that same phenomenon is happening with COVID-19, you just start to see the deep structural inequality baked into our society. So whether it's the fact that um, you have communities in Florida that are predominantly black and brown, where escaped slaves sought out these places because they were so low-lying they were considered they were swamps and no one wanted them and they also provided a sense of refuge those are the places that are being inundated by rising sea levels now um and you see the ways in which black and brown communities are often the ones who can't afford to work from home who have to continue to drive ubers or to work you know, as Amazon delivery drivers or to continue to do lower wage labor in the age of the pandemic. Like these things, these states are the result of historical inequality and oppression. And when we can call them out for that, then hopefully we can start to recognize the deep sickness at the heart of our society and the ways in which um, we can't just solve these problems with single one-off individual solutions. The answer is not just to stay at home and order Amazon. The answer is not just to lift your home up on stilts and let your neighbor suffer. The answer is to say, why do we live in a world how did we get to the point that we live in a world where safety is not distributed evenly? And as long as safety isn't distributed evenly, as long as risk isn't distributed evenly, none of us are safe and all of us are at risk. So I think that you, that is true with climate change just as it's true with COVID-19. Um, I think that we're starting to have those conversations though I worry, I worry about the depth of the engagement that we're having and the, and the, <laughs> the, the signs I worry that part, we're having the conversations because people are stuck at home and anxious and then others are working and incredibly angry. And I wonder what happens when some of those 
uh, driving forces shift a little bit. Um, I think that if we continue to see significant protests play out in the lead up to the election, that would make me pleased because we know that protests can historically shape election results, but only when they happen really close to the election. Like what happened this summer as a distance from the upcoming election doesn't necessarily have a profound enough impact. So we have to keep that energy going as we move into the next electoral cycle. So um, there's a lot of overlap. I have some hope and also some deep concerns <laughs> about where we go next. For those who don't own a home right now or have families of their own, I'm thinking of Gen Y or millennials like myself, who for many reasons have decided to continue renting and remain childless. There's often the feeling you describe in your book as end sickness, like motion sickness or seasickness. This is a climate sickness and uncertainty about the future. And at a time when we are all living with feelings of uncertainty due to the coronavirus, I'm very interested to hear what you would tell someone at age 15 or 25 or 35 who believes they are facing a future so different from their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, a future that requires them to make choices about their family size, where they will put down roots, and how they will form their communities. I don't mean this to sound flippant. Part of me says, lucky you. Like, how wonderful that you have to, as you come into being who you are profoundly as an adult, have to think about that, that identity being one of incredible flexibility and resilience and um, an identity that has to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, that has to be at ease with being uncertain about what is coming next, because that is the world that we live in. I think sometimes the generations that we're seeing suffering the most, struggling the most to hold on to what was, are generations that haven't had as, a, as their touchstone this idea that the future that they're gonna inhabit is profoundly uncertain. So, you know, I would say I'm right on the cusp. I'm 36. I just bought my first home. I just had my first child. And I definitely, I think because of the work that I do, also understand how profoundly uncertain um, those things that I just committed to are. You know, will the United States continue to be a functioning civil society? Is this home going to continue to gain value? Will my son um, inhabit a world where social order is maintained or will climate change fundamentally rend and disrupt uh, the weave of society as we know it? I think about those things all the time. Um, and there is also a part of me that wants to encourage you to continue to fall in love with the more than human world, continue to live deeply and engage with that which matters most to you, that even though 
things are uncertain, that doesn't mean that you should give up on um, that which fundamentally fuels you or fills you with a sense of regeneration and hope. I think that those are things that we also have to learn to foster um, even amidst all of that uncertainty. In addition to your book, what other titles do you recommend to readers who are passionate about reading further on this topic? At the library, we share reading lists and recommendations all the time, but I'm curious to hear what titles you recommend and also maybe some that you want to read. So I'm just looking over at my bookshelf to remember my favorites. I did, the first title that comes to mind when I read your question um, is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's not um, directly related to climate change. She is both a botanist and um, Native American, and she has written this book that fundamentally looks at the places where indigenous traditional knowledge overlap with and echo and reinforce what we know from the world of botany. And I will say, as I worked on Rising, I would often find myself asking, especially in frontline communities that were indigenous, you know, what are the ways in which you are adapting to rising sea levels? How does your knowledge of the more than human world fundamentally shape the solutions that you're coming up with? And often when I read the reports, it would be like, oh, well, they're using traditional knowledge. And then there was no information on what traditional knowledge meant in this situation. And this book, I think, is a fundamentally, it's a profound response to that question. What is traditional knowledge? It actually tries to name it and uh, carry it into our consciousness in the form of really beautifully written, engaging stories. So hard, hard sell on Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, it's funny, I think the other book I wanted to recommend is coming out in September. It's called Milltown. And as I'm reflecting on these two recommendations, neither is directly related with climate change, but both are fundamentally related to some of the things that are at stake in rising. And I think that's also to say that I find a lot of climate change writing hard to read. Um, not as pleasurable to read and not as engaging to read. It's not all of it, but um, I'm just laughing that I still think it's a conversation that unfortunately we tend to have in a set uh, rubric and often the language that we use to describe climate change can leave a little bit, leave me feeling a little lackluster. Anyways, the other book I would recommend is Milltown by um, Carrie Arsenal. It's coming out September 1st. It's the only nonfiction book that broke through the fog of late pregnancy for me. And it is a story of Mexico, Maine, which is home to one of the largest paper mills um, in the state. And it asks a series of really profound questions. Carrie, the author, is from is from Mexico, Maine. Her father worked in the mill. Um, and it asks these questions around, what does it mean to live in a place where the economy functions 
thanks in part to an industry that fundamentally ruins that place and fundamentally ruins the people that are involved in the industry. Her father dies of lung cancer, likely related to um, his work in the mill, though she can't directly prove that. It also asks about sort of the long-term environmental impact. The mill sits on the Androscoggin River, which runs through Maine. Um, and it asks about sort of the load that we ask that river to carry, both in a very physical sense, but also in, in a kind of spiritual sense. And as someone who lives, who grew up in a mill town in New England, it is a deep history of mill towns in New England. And that's something that I've actually never encountered before. So it helped me to also feel like, um, even though the book's about Mexico, Maine, that I was learning about the social and political inequality at the heart of a lot of New England's um, dying industrial towns. And it gave me, I think, insight into some of the anger and the oppression that has shaped the way the places that many of the towns that I've lived as an adult um, has fundamentally shaped the way those towns work. And so it's also beautifully written. So Milltown by Carrie Arsenault, you should definitely go read. Thank you. I'll make sure we buy a copy of that book. Yeah, it's excellent. You were included in the recently published book, Writing Wilds, by Catherine Alto. The book explores the important work of 25 women whose writing shapes the way we see our landscape. She describes you as having given a voice to those who have been ignored for too long, and even giving voice to the melting ice itself. Last year, you were an artist and writer in residence for the National Science Foundation in Antarctica. Can you share a bit about that trip and what you are planning for your next book? Sure. So last year I had the incredible honor of being sent on a two month long expedition to the calving edge of the Waits Glacier, which is in a part of Antarctica so remote that no one had ever been there before in the history of the planet. And I was sent there with a crew of scientists whose task it was to take, you know, fundamental basic observational data from the place where the ice shelf meets the sea to in order to better understand the rate at which the weights will disintegrate in the coming century. So there's a couple fundamental things at play here that I certainly didn't know before I started this project. One, you know, if you were to take all of the ice off of Antarctica, what remains is kind of an archipelago of islands. And that's really fundamentally true on the Western side of Antarctica. So a lot of the ice that sits at the Southern part of our planet rests on land that's below water or below, sorry, rests on land that's below water. That's correct. And as ocean currents have fundamentally shifted and started to warm, a lot of Western Antarctica is being eaten away at from beneath by these warmer currents. But how warm the water is, how much is circulating beneath the ice, how fundamentally the ice is um, being melted by that water is almost impossible for us to know because 
it's such a so remote this part of the planet is so remote that unless you send someone there all you have is aerial imagery or aerial information so it's very hard to create any sense of um real numbers around how quickly west antarctica is falling apart so when you look at sort of the predictions for sea level rise there's often a big asterisk which says this doesn't take into account west antarctica and there's some scientists out there who believe that the weights, this glacier that is the size of Great Britain, could, because of um, a series of physical processes, fall apart in the next hundred years. And that would cause that glacier alone would cause sea levels to rise four feet globally. It's so massive. And it's sort of the cork to the West Antarctic ice sheet, which if that melted, we'd have 12 feet of sea level rise. So we were sent there to try to better understand the rate at which this glacier is stepping back. As I started to research Antarctica, I realized that the first person to see Antarctica saw, um, caught sight of land there in 1820, so that's 200 years ago, and that in the time since the majority of the stories that we've told about the last continent have been written by men and are often stories of conquest, um, of exceptional human beings overcoming great odds to do something that, that, that a single person has never done before. Um, and many, you know, almost all the land features in Antarctica are named after men whom fall, whose narrative falls into this pattern. And I started to, ask myself if there was a different story that what one might tell about a journey to Antarctica and what that might look like. And as I set out to go to Antarctica last year, um, I was certainly my husband and I were on the cusp of trying to conceive to have trying to conceive a child. Um, and so it's really a book that thinks about motherhood and what it means to bring a child into the world in the present moment alongside um, a journey to Antarctica, alongside a journey to the last continent, and alongside a journey to a glacier that is fundamentally falling apart in the present tense. So what does it mean to have those two concerns sort of in your mind at the same time? And I'll say that it has testimonies, just like rising, and currently it's sort of written in the second person, which feels like a massive risk. And I don't know if that'll stay, but that's the book. I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Thank you so much. We are going to conclude with a series of questions from the Barrington community. The first one comes from Chuck Nichols. I'm a retired physics lecturer I had a unit in my course on climate change in a physics of the environment course. Wish I had your book then for my students. I wonder if high schools and grad schools are incorporating climate change in their curriculums in different studies, not just science, but in literature and civic education. Are you aware of programs like this? This would be a wonderful way to raise the awareness and by addressing it in different studies, it may motivate students besides science majors to become involved in climate concerns? So I would say absolutely. 
I've been teaching in a bunch of different university systems for almost a decade now. And during that time, both I've been invited to teach more classes in the English department on new nature writing is the way I would describe it. You know, writing that incorporates um, climate change into its set of concerns. But we're also seeing, and this is something that certainly happened since I even graduated from college, the rise in environmental studies programs and programs that really are designed to be um, a meeting place of the hard sciences and the humanities. So even at a place like um, Brown University, they have the Institute at Brown for the Study of the Environment and Society, and they have everything from um, physics courses to history courses to geology courses to humanities courses, some that are even co-taught, one by someone in the humanities and uh, by someone in the hard sciences that are meant to really sort of bridge that gap that sometimes exists between the sciences and the humanities. And I think we're certainly seeing more and more across university systems this move towards an interdisciplinary study of climate change. The second one comes from Cindy Pierce. In an interview you gave on Rising, you were discussing climate refugees and vulnerable populations. And you said one of your aims for the book was to show that vulnerability can be a strength and that our vulnerability can be something that unites us. How can communities, Barrington for example, tap into that vulnerability and come together to make hard decisions about the future landscape of our town in a proactive, unifying way versus a reactive way. And I'm going to pair Cindy's question with a voice memo we received from Robert Hart. Hello, my name is Robert from Barrington, Rhode Island. And my question for Elizabeth is, when is the appropriate time to implement managed retreat? It seems like in many cases today, managed retreat is implemented post-storm in the face of disaster and loss. I wonder, is it preferable from your perspective that a community could implement managed retreat before the storm when sea level rise shows where certain neighborhoods will soon be lost? So I thought Cindy's question about being proactive, it might fit here. Yeah, those are both fabulous questions. And I think in many senses, um, as more and more of us wake up to the reality that climate change is with us in the present tense, they are questions that are on the forefront of people's minds. My mind immediately goes to um, two different places, Louisiana and um, North Carolina, and the ways in which different communities are responding there that I find really proactive and promising. So. One thing that we see is um, for this question about whether or not we should be and how we might be able to be proactive about managed retreat, I think it is important to start to recognize that there are places that we will ultimately have to leave behind. And it's not the entire coastline, but it's thinking really seriously about where are communities that are within six feet of high tide or 10 feet of high tide 
we know that we've dialed in a certain amount of sea level rise in and that it's not going to get to be less than that in the next hundred years. Still, the predictions change and fluctuate, but the more we know about sea level rise, the more we think that we're likely to get at least six feet by the end of the century. So being able to identify places that no matter what aren't going to be habitable soon, I think is really important. And then one thing that I've seen, um, for instance, in Norfolk is that they are pairing the rights to develop in the high spots in the city with um, a need to generate what they're called resiliency credits. So if you want to put in a new target on top of you know, Mount Manresa in Norfolk, you have to um, earn a certain amount of resiliency credits in the community. And one of the ways to do that is to offer to purchase low-lying land and low-lying homes and to help those people living there retreat. So it's pairing this proactive development that's saying, you know, we're no folk, we want to stay here, we want to maintain our community with a recognition that there are places where we are going to have to move away from risk. And so asking the developers who want to benefit or profit from their developments to carry some of that burden, I think is a really interesting way to think about being proactive about managed retreat. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is that we're seeing in Louisiana, which we know has lost an incredible amount of land to land, land subsidence and also um, sea level rise over the past 50 years. We're talking about you know, land, a landmass equal in size to the state of Delaware has been lost. They're slated to lose land equal in size to the state of Rhode Island in the next 80 years. Um, they have started to, across coastal communities, across the state, carry out um, a series of community-based conversations around what they want to maintain, how they want to maintain it, and what they're willing to give up. Um, and I think really interestingly, in a private, in a pilot program there, the state has agreed to offer funding to six different communities to fund the things that they elect to do in these community-held conversations. And it's really interesting to see that process play out because you'll have a community that will say, okay, we want each community that got involved in the project got funding to fund two projects. And there are some that have identified both managed retreat as one of their top funding priorities and um, you know, building up the shoreline in another part of town. So managed retreat maybe from a few pocket-sized neighborhoods and um, putting in wetlands to safeguard or buffer the marina. So you're seeing communities sort of come up with a list of priorities together in a grassroots way. And then the state is helping them fund both all of the options or two of the options that they're interested in pursuing. So I think, um, that's, in a sense, another way in which we can be proactive and thinking about um, where we want to go. I think that one of the things that we face with sea level rise is there's often 
an incredible conversation that needs to happen around what will be lost. But there's also a conversation to be had around who we want to become and where we want to go. I think in Rhode Island, you know, our overall coastline to acreage ratio is literally the second highest in the country. It's higher than Hawaii, which I find really amazing. And one of the things I think we could be thinking about here in Rhode Island is, you know, do we want a like a national seashore program? Do we want to create a series of linked parks that are like Jacob's Point, um, but start to wrap our coastline in protective and buffering wetlands? Um, wetlands are one of the things that can protect us in the storms to come as well as providing, you know, important habitat for wetlands, creatures and communities. So I think that there's a way for us to be forward looking and that's also a conversation that needs to happen community by community. I know that um, lots of our coastal communities are starting to have those conversations and that uh, I find quite buoying. The next question comes from Victor Larish. Sadly, the arc of your stories are only partly written and while you give us frightening glimpses of what the future holds, I imagine it must be heartbreaking as an author to step away from the writing of the book after its completion. Could you reflect on this? In addition, I am wondering if you have continued to follow the individual stories of the places and people you write about in the book, and might we hear from you about this in the future? Thank you for asking those questions. Um, it was incredibly moving to me. Let me let me take a step back. Um, so Rising was chosen as the Read Across Rhode Island Book of the Year. And when we launched the project, when we launched the program in January, I had the incredible honor of being um, in the audience, well, the local theater group did presented an, an interpretive play of the book, and they did they performed the first chapter, the Jacobs Point chapter, and it was incredibly moving to be in the audience and to watch um, other folks take on you know take on this issue as actors and turn it into theater. It also gave me a chance to reflect as I watched them and listened, I could hear the incredible grief um, from which that first chapter is written. And it is a grief that I dwelled in um, and that as you heard, um, if you've listened to me read some of that chapter, really worked its way into my subconscious, You know, caused me to have tremendous nightmares I think I had for years, I steeped in the sense of reckoning with what would be lost, what is being lost. And of course I continued to follow and be deeply involved in the climate change conversation. As I sat in the audience and watched that grief play out on stage, I also recognized that that's not necessarily where I dwell any longer. And that's partly because um, of programs like Read Across Rhode Island. It's partly because of the fact that when I open the newspaper now, I actually read climate change stories. And when I started writing this book, that, that was rarely the case. And it feels like since, you know, I started writing this book in 2011, 
We're on the cusp of 2021. And the way that we talk about and engage with climate change over that decade has changed fundamentally. And it is part of the public conversation in a way that it wasn't, you know, five, 10 years ago. And that actually fills me with a bit of a sense of hope. I think that we're doing more now than we ever were doing <laughs> five, 10 years ago. There is a second part to the question, and I want to make sure I don't forget it. Oh, have I kept up with people? Absolutely. Um, every single person whose testimony is in the book, I stay in touch with. Um, it was really wonderful to be able to call each of them and tell them that the book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. They took an incredible amount of pride and, and excitement. Um, with that news, especially Nicole Montalto, who's a young woman who shared with me um, the story of Hurricane Sandy and how it took her father's life. She felt um, that not only is his memory living in this book, but that it's also hopefully helping to do some good in terms of conversations around managed retreat and um, unlawful wetlands development. So I've definitely stayed in touch with everyone. And as you rightly point out, you know, when I finished writing the book, none of the stories were finished. None of the stories in the book are finished now. I think, you know, Nicole recently gave birth to her second child. Her first um, was a girl and she's named Lenora after her father, Leonard. And so you see, um, as I follow people's stories, I've seen just the cycle of life continue to carry them onward. Laura's in the process of trying to sell her house. Cap the captain, um, Dan Kipnis, did finally sell his house. So, you know, you know that these stories are just always unfolding and you're right to point out that they're not over and they will continue to unfold all across the country and coastal communities. If it's not the specific people in this book, it's someone else and they're happening to them right now. The fifth question comes from Nickerson Miles and I'll play his audio. Hi, I'm Nick Miles, a resident of Barrington and a member of the Climate Change Lifelong Learning Collaborative class. Here's my question. Grover Fugate, the former head of the Coastal Resources Management Council in Rhode Island said, to put it simply, by the turn of the century, there will be many more islands in the state of Rhode Island. I find that a sobering thought. The ocean state is well ahead of many others in recognizing the challenge but changing infrastructure like roadways usually takes decades. It strikes me that we're quickly running out of time, not just to affect the rate of sea level rise, but to accommodate its implications in all aspects of our lives. What's your reaction? So I think that this question points out one of the most fundamentally vexing things that we have to reckon with um, in terms of sea level rise. I think a lot of folks get to the point where they recognize that sea levels are rising. And then the instinct is 
you know, okay, well, I'll lift my home above the rising tides. And we have programs in this country funded through FEMA and the National Flood Insurance Program to do just that. However, um, as you point out, it's not just a single home that has to be lifted. It is the infrastructure that serves that community. It's the roadways. It's the electric lines. It's the gas lines. I know, you know, I, there's a fabulous application, web application called Surging Seas run by Climate Central. And it allows you to map any place in the United States and lots of places internationally as well. Map, you know, a bathtub model of one feet, two feet, three feet of sea level rise atop um, your local community. And I did it yesterday for Barrington and saw, you know, I believe it's county road or country road. County road. County road is, you know, with six feet, which again is what, you know, I would say some might call a conservative estimate for the end of the century is significant portions of it are underwater. So, you know, you have to think about not just the couple home, I mean, it's more than a couple homes, but not just the neighborhoods and homes that are underwater, but how are you going to also continue to surface the surrounding areas that might not be inundated with six feet of sea level rise, but depend on those roadways, depend upon all of the infrastructure to, um, to maintain a thriving community. And that's also where I think you start to get into the deeper philosophical questions around who we are and what we want to become. Because when you start to recognize that it's not as easy as paying a couple hundred thousand dollars to lift a home, um, when you start to recognize that the very, you know, lifelines, the veins that tie our communities together in terms of infrastructure also being inundated, you recognize that climate change doesn't have um, an easy one-stop design solution to it, that we have to, as a society, reckon with the fact that we have fundamentally changed the way our planet functions and we need to change who we are and how we think about getting around um, and maintaining life on this planet as a result. So, you know, the answer isn't necessarily to raise county road, it's to have a serious conversation around like, so what are we going to prioritize as a community? Do we want to prioritize um, impermeable driving surfaces or do we want to prioritize walking paths and biking paths? How do we want to get around? What do we want to maintain? If we're going to assume that this is going to be underwater, the answer isn't just to build it higher and wait for the next storm. It's to have a deep conversation around what makes Barrington Barrington? What makes Warren Warren? How do we hold on to those things as the land itself changes shape? The sixth and final question comes from Lisa Valentino. Hello, my name is Lisa Valentino. And my comment and question for Elizabeth involves taking action. Elizabeth, I think that we are all genuinely concerned with climate change issues, especially in our communities, but oftentimes we don't know how to take action. After reading your book, Rising, what is one thing that the reader can do to act on climate change in a positive way? Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for that question. 
I think the answer is going to change and be different person by person, community by community. I think for the longest time we've heard, you know, change your light bulbs, use less electricity, buy an electric car. And the reality is that none of those individual actions is fundamentally enough to change the course of history that we're on right now. And mm -hmm. one thing that I learned from coastal communities around the country um, is that when communities started to recognize that their vulnerability was shared amongst and between themselves, amongst and between their neighbors. And it wasn't just something like, oh, my house floods. No, I flood and all of the people on my street flood. Um, and we, we can't continue to pump out our basements or raise up our homes. There has to be a larger scale solution. Um, and we're gonna come together as a community to demand that larger scale solution. So I would say becoming involved in your community over an issue that can unite both, unite those who are vulnerable to it and help you collectively raise awareness so that political action can happen. Um, that's where I would go in terms of what's one thing you can do. What that looks like is gonna be different person by person, community by community. I do wanna give a shout out to a couple of different organizations that you might think about um, looking into to see what they're doing in your neck of the woods because they might have um, a, an arm of their organization already active. So the first one that I would um, mention is a group called Higher Ground. And they're the largest coalition of flood survivors in the country. They have over 100,000 members already. And they are designed to, um, they're a central organization that provides pro bono environmental um, assessments, uh, hydrological assessments, and also pro bono legal counsel to frontline communities that are experiencing flooding. And the idea being, once a community is empowered with knowledge around what their flooding looks like and how it's going to get worse with climate change, they can start to create a cohesive argument for local politicians about what they'd like to do in response to those threats. And that can be anything from managed retreat to, um, we've seen environmental lawsuits against unlawful wetlands development and so this organization um, helps put you in contact with different resources that can, I think, make a really real significant difference in terms of how your local battle with flooding plays out on the ground. Um, so I'd call out Higher Ground as an excellent resource. I would also say that, you know, here in Rhode Island, I've become involved with Nationalized Grid, which is part of um, the Democratic Socialists of America and their movement to um, fundamentally shift who has control over the development of energy infrastructure in the state. So there's a lot of questions that are currently playing out in Rhode Island. We know that the governor you know, says we wanna be entirely renewable in the electric field um, in a short span of time, but what is that gonna look like? We already know that, for instance, Rhode Islanders 
pay, I believe, the second highest utility rates in the nation after Hawaii. So in order to transition our energy infrastructure to entirely renewables, who's going to bear the brunt of that cost? How are we going to make it affordable for low-income black and brown communities in the state? There's you know, a lot, Rhode Island is very progressive in many ways in terms of climate change adaptation, but there are these really tricky conversations that we have to have around how we're going to fund these transitions and how we're going to do it in a timeline that really matters. Um, so I would say, you know, get involved with local organizations that are engaging with climate change in a way that speaks to you. So it can be flooding, it can be energy infrastructure, but set aside a little bit of time to join with others like and find that strength in numbers. I also love um, the Sunrise Movement and I love seeing young folks all around the country get activated um, around climate change. They know it's a social justice issue. They know it's an environmental justice issue. That's something that I think it's taken <laughs> the older generation quite a while longer to wake up to. And, um, you know, when I go to sunrise events, I'm just impressed by how profoundly they understand that this is not just a conversation around um, wetlands conservation or recycling plastics. They understand that it's really a conversation around who's contributed the most to change the environment and who bears the brunt of the impact and how we might see this as an opportunity to arrive at a more just, more equal distribution of wealth and resources all around the planet. How can we think of climate change as offering us an opportunity to talk about what it means to thrive as beings, um, as opposed to you know what it means to thrive financially or economically? So Sunrise, I think, gets that. And if you're younger and listening and you haven't gotten involved with Sunrise yet, get out there and get involved with them. They're wonderful. On behalf of Barrington Public Library, I thank you for sharing your time with us, answering our many questions, and for writing such an impactful book. And thank you for being a part of Roadie Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And let me just say that it's an incredible honor to have Rising as the Read Across Rhode Island book for 2020. And I really enjoyed all the conversations that I've been able to have with residents across the state um, since we started this project. And I look forward to them continuing into the future. Thanks so much for reading. listening. Today's podcast episode is a production of Barrington Public Library. Our theme music is Pure Water by Maydon. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and made possible through a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful and supportive Friends of Barrington Public Library. Join the friends and support the programs you love. Learn more at friendsofthebarringtonlibrary.org.
You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good. <laughs> 